page 906 of your pew Bible, John chapter 20. We are going to uh, undertake, and it's a rather ambitious undertaking, the preaching and the exploration of this entire chapter. It, it is really the issue upon which all of Christianity spins. This is the resurrection that we're going to be exploring here this morning. And I admit to you that it is a little bit strange, a little odd to be preaching on and exploring the resurrection, really an Easter passage, a passage that would be appropriate for that day um, in the midst of the Advent season. But I think that Christmas, the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, has absolutely everything to do with the resurrection. These things are intimately tied together, and we're going to explore how that's the case a little bit as we make our way through this passage this morning. But let's take a moment now to read it. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. 
And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. That is a great word to us this morning. And we pray that he would write the truth and the grace of that word upon all of our hearts. You know, one of my objectives as, as a minister, especially of this particular congregation, is that we would come to understand why things like the birth of Jesus Christ, why things like his death, why things like the resurrection matter. We know that they happen. We can explain to you what Christmas is about, what Easter is about, and things of that nature. But really, do we understand what difference this makes as we go to work tomorrow morning and as we engage with our families and our friends and our neighbors throughout the course of the week? What difference does the resurrection make? Why is it important? I think that when you look at Christianity, when you look at the emphasis placed on this resurrection here in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament, you discover that the resurrection really is the thing upon which Christianity stands or falls. I mean, it's absolutely vital that we get a picture of this resurrection and that it starts to take deep roots at the level of our souls. Because if you read the Bible and, and the story of Christianity really ends in John chapter 19, where we were last week, with Jesus crucified, dead, and buried, and that's the end of the Apostles' Creed, and that's the end of the story of Christianity, then really we are people without any hope. And we're fools to be sitting in here this morning. I mean, we're wasting our time sitting in here this morning if Christianity ends with the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Because anybody can pontificate, anybody can teach good moral teachings, anybody can do that type of thing, but to just die and not conquer death is something that is not particularly special. And we would be fools to, to build our life upon a Christianity that doesn't have a risen Savior. But you know what we would also be fools to do? We would be fools not to build our life upon him and upon his truth and upon his grace and upon his, upon his promises and precepts to us if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. In other words, if John chapter 20 actually happens, if, if Jesus does in fact rise from the dead and appear to all the disciples, we are fools not to believe that. Because what Jesus is doing in the resurrection is he's saying that I have absolute authority over the one thing that is going to get everybody. I have absolute authority over the most powerful force in the universe, which is death. 
It's going to get the street beggar in Mexico City, and it is going to get Donald Trump, and it is going to get you, and it is going to get me. And Jesus is saying that he has conquered that. The only reason why we have hope of eternal life, of being with him, of being with him in the heavenly places as he promises us, is because he has risen from the dead. He has conquered death. That's why we are people who are not ultimately cursed. And so it means that we need to take his warnings with a sense of sobriety And we need to receive his promises gladly. And we need to follow his commandments zealously. Because he's conquered death. He's not just another religious teacher. He is truly the king of kings and the lord of lords. As trite as that sounds, and if you've been in the church, you've heard that forever. But he truly is that. And he shows that that's the case because of the resurrection. This is... This is a passage that's so full of so much. I don't know what I was thinking by trying to preach this in just one sermon. I mean, it's just more than we can bite off. There there are just so many avenues that we could go down as we explore this great passage about the resurrection. We could spend some time talking about the basis and the, the proofs for the resurrection, taking an apologetic angle towards this so that we can be able to go amongst people who reject Christianity on the basis that there's no, there's no way a person could actually rise from the dead. We could take that angle. It's worth spending time doing. I mean, we look at, at John in this, in this passage and Peter. They're eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus had arisen from the dead. They go into the tomb and they look and they notice that the burial cloths that Jesus had been wrapped in by Joseph of Arimathea, as we saw last week, and, and the others, the, the clothes are laying in the exact same place. It's almost as if there was a body in them and then this body just detached himself from the clothing. They're just laying there as if a person had been in them and there's this cloth that's neatly folded in a corner somewhere and and this is something that John is saying that he has seen with his very own eyes and he knows that it's crazy it's crazy I mean if you have been a Christian for a long time you have perhaps lost the notion that to believe in in someone who has risen from the dead is absolutely ludicrous and absurd it's crazy. And, and people knew that in that day and age as well. I mean, people 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East didn't believe in a bodily resurrection any more than we believe in it today. This isn't just something that primitive people believed in. And John is telling us that he's actually seen this with his very own eyes. Not just him, but he's also seen it with Peter. And the details of this are absolutely ensconced on his memory. You can't shake it. It's something that just stays with him and that he needs to bring to bear upon our lives. Jesus doesn't just show that he's been resurrected by leaving the tomb and we see the cloths there, but he also makes an appearance, makes an appearance to the disciples. He makes an appearance to Mary. And as we read the other Gospels, we discover that there were two other women who were with her there. He appears to her and to all of these other people and and between this time of the resurrection and the time that he's going to ascend into heaven, he appears to so many people. There's not some kind of mass hallucination going on here. That doesn't even happen. He's saying that this resurrection is actually real. And all the evidence points in that direction. The burden of proof is really upon those who reject it. 
There's no reason to believe that these historical accounts are untrue. The, the consistency of the gospel writers, everything that Paul and Peter and John and James and all these people write, they're basing it off of a historical resurrection that many of them saw with their very own eyes. And so to make the rejection of the resurrection something that you actually believe seems to put a huge burden of proof on the person taking that angle. We could spend more and more time looking at that this morning. We could explore time, it's a whole sermon worth, exploring the fact that Jesus, when he makes his very first appearance, appears to, of all people, a woman. Not just any woman, but a woman who had been demon-possessed. You would not write the story that way if you were making it up. And the reason why is because women were just not particularly valued in that day and age, in that culture. That's something that stemmed more from the culture than it did from Scripture, but it was the case nonetheless. Women's testimony was not valid in court. They were basically seen as being useful for childbearing and not much else. And yet Jesus, of all the people that he could have made an appearance to after he rises from the dead, he takes the initiative to come to Mary and to the other women who were with her and say, Mary, here I am. I have risen. I have risen indeed. He makes this appearance to her. It's not the way that you would design the story. And he commissions her to be the very first post-resurrection missionary. To go and to tell the men that Jesus has risen indeed. It's a beautiful story. It's totally counterintuitive and countercultural. Because it tells us that Jesus has come to undo the curse. We have created in our lives, my friends, all sorts of artificial boundaries to keep us away from other people, to, to, to make these artificial protective barriers around ourselves, to make ourselves feel better about ourselves by minimizing the value and the worth and the humanity of someone else. We dehumanize people all the time. You high school students know this as well as anybody else. It's just part and parcel of what high school life is like. And it doesn't get necessarily a whole lot better when you get to be an adult. It's something that we all do. And it was going on in this culture at the time. The, the absolute sexism that was there against women. And what Jesus is telling us here in, in making his first appearance to a woman is he's saying that it is not okay to be sexist, as different as the differences between men and women are. It's not okay to be a racist. He's breaking down those artificial walls that we have created, and he's creating a new family of all kinds of people with all sorts of differences and backgrounds and all sorts of personal differences. We're a church that, when you look around, there is a measure of diversity here. We have old and young. We have wealthy. We have not so wealthy. We don't have very much racial diversity to our shame, but Lord willing, we'll see more and more of that. And what all of that says is that despite all of our differences, Jesus is creating a new family. We're brothers and sisters, despite all of those things. And he shows us that in the fact that he makes this appearance, his very first one, to a woman. We could spend more time on that. We could spend time on this really odd passage here in verse 23. I don't know if you picked up on that, uh, but what Jesus says to the disciples here is that if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. 
If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. If you're a a Protestant of some sort, you can kind of gloss over that, not really zero in on it, because that particular verse there seems very, very Roman Catholic, doesn't it? When I first read that, I was thinking of the confessional, of, of going and sitting in kind of a dark room with a priest in a little box that you can't see and confessing my sins to him and having him tell me to do all these Hail Marys and, and to you know, perform these acts of penance. And I don't think that's really what Jesus is getting at here. I think what Jesus is getting at here when he's saying to his disciples, is he is saying that there is a measure of authority in the church that is, that is an authority grounded in him and ultimately grounded in scripture. That the overseers of the church, those people who he says this to who are going to be his apostles, that they actually have the authority on the basis of scripture, not their own autonomous basis, to say that a person's sins are forgiven or to say that a person is not yet forgiven. And, and they have the, the power to, to say that. Look, y'all, here's the reality. True Christians, all true Christians, are going to at some point acknowledge the enormity of their sin. They're going to feel it in their bodies. You probably at some point, if you haven't already, wake up in the middle of the night in some kind of a cold sweat and you're going to look at the history of your life and at the skeletons in your closet. And it is going to terrify you. Because every Christian must do business with his sin or her sin in order to come to know God's grace. We are all hypocrites to the very core. And the reality is, is if, if there is no repentance in our lives, then there really is no reason to believe that we actually know him, that we actually do believe in him. Just because you had a conversion experience at some point in your life, if there's no fruit that is born out of that, there's no reason to believe that you actually know him. James tells us this, that faith without works is dead. We are not saved by our works, but we are saved unto works, aren't we? That his grace and his kindness is always going to lead us to repentance. As miserable and as much as we fail, that is going to happen in the course of our lives. And if that's not happening, the overseers of Christ's church have the unfortunate responsibility of saying, there's no evidence that we see that you know Jesus Christ. And to call that person to repentance. But, I'll say this, and this is the other side of the equation, and it's the much more joyful side of the equation, it's that the overseers of the church also have the ability to come to a person who is troubled about their sin and yet is running to the cross, who's actually struggling with it, fighting against it, seeking to put it to death, and and turning to Christ in repentance to say, you are showing the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, that you actually know Him. Despite your failures, you can take great solace in Him. When I was in seminary, my internship was at Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church up in Jackson working with college students, mainly students who went to Belhaven up there. And then after I took my first call out in California, I was working with college students at the University of California in San Diego. And I love working with college students because it's such an important time in life where you're really grappling with the faith. Is the faith your parents or is it your own? 
developing your worldview, your, your way of, of seeing the world and, and your faith is starting to become a real thing, a true thing, or a thing that is totally counterfeit. And so I loved working with college students and I would sit across the table with them at lunch very often and many students would come to me deeply troubled because they had gotten themselves into some situation that they could have never imagined that they would have gotten themselves into. They committed sins that they could never imagine. They caused pain. They had gotten trapped in some form of sexual immorality. They had become addicted to certain things. And they're shocked by this. They've done things they, they never thought that they would do. And they come to me with fear and uncertainty and doubt and hopelessness, wondering, how can I actually be a saved person, have God's grace upon me, if I've done something like that. And I'm thankful that I can stand before them and tell them with the greatest confidence that yes, what you have done is sinful. Yes, what you have done is in rebellion to God and it's offensive to him. And yes, you need to repent. And yes, you need to turn your sights upon the gospel. And yes, that produces holiness and faithfulness and obedience. But at the same time, I can tell that person if they're looking to Christ and they're resting upon him, and they're not trusting in themselves, that they are forgiven. The gospel assures us of that. I'm not saying that on the basis of my own authority. I'm saying it on the basis of the authority of Scripture, of the authority of what Jesus has to say. That even in our darkest hours, turning to Christ, having that be the, the reality of our life, shows evidence that we are forgiven, shows evidence that there's no condemnation for us and that our sins have been cast off as far as the east is from the west, and that God just forgets about them. There's a great thing in that. We could spend more time on that. I, you know, I can't promise a person wealth. I can't promise a person prosperity. I can't promise a person a really great family life. But I can promise a person who's resting in Jesus Christ, despite all of the junk in their life, that they stand forgiven. And that is your hope, and that's my hope, and that's the hope that I want each of us to be able to take with us all throughout our lives, that he has forgiven us and that he is pleased to call us his children and he's not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of you, Christian, and that's the great thing. One other contour we could take. We could head off in the direction of this whole story about doubting Thomas here, the famous doubting Thomas that we see towards the end of this passage. He's kind of the Eeyore of Scripture, isn't he? I mean, he, he's more of a pessimist, really, than he is a doubter. But he's a doubter nonetheless. And I think that all of us have that besetting issue, don't we? All of us, if we're going to be honest, I mean, really, if, if we're just going to be flat out honest, we all have doubts to one degree or another. We, we doubt that Jesus is really powerful enough to conquer a lot of the demons in my life. We, we doubt that he's will answer our prayers. We think that he very often doesn't care that much about what we pray about. It just seems so insignificant in the whole grand scheme of things. And we doubt that he really cares. We doubt that he's checked in. We sometimes doubt that Jesus really loves us. We sing all these great songs. You hear this gospel. You read about it. But in your own personal experience, there seems to be some kind of an incongruity there that you don't really know and understand that Jesus loves you. You kind of doubt that that's the case. We're from Mississippi. We're in the buckle of the Bible Belt. This is the most religious state in the country. It's probably the most religious place on the planet. 
And, and many of us have this strand of Christianity that has somehow touched our lives to one degree or another. But you're here this morning, and there's part of you, if you're really honest, that's wondering if Christianity isn't just the biggest stack of baloney that you've ever heard. We have doubts if we're honest about them. And, and I love this about Thomas. Thomas has some doubts. And he doesn't check his brain at the door of the church when he walks in. He deals honestly with those doubts. And he's not satisfied to you know, go grab a bumper sticker at his local Christian bookstore that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, and plaster it on the back of whatever his mode of transportation is without actually doing some rigorous thought and wanting to get his questions answered. And I just appreciate that so much about Thomas. He doesn't just take the disciples at their word. I appreciate that too, that too. I, you know, I don't want you just to take me at my word. I, I'm someone who's been trained. I think I know what I'm talking about. I try to be faithful as I possibly can. I, I, I've been ordained to the gospel ministry, and I think I know scripture, and I try to bring it to you as faithfully as I possibly can. But I'm not an infallible person. And so I want to challenge you to know your Bibles. Know God. Know his word. The Bereans, when you see in Acts chapter 17, were the kind of people who would listen to the Apostle Paul, of all people, and they would read their Bibles daily, not in a, in, in a skeptical, antagonistic way, but just to discover, is Paul, what he's telling us here, is this actually true? Is this actually true? They knew their Bibles, and they knew their God. And I want to challenge you to do that. Be a thinking Christian. Don't be someone who just checks out the moment you come here. You apply so much mental energy into what you do in your own life and to what's going on in the world. Why don't we do that with Christianity? I want us to be a church and be Christians who think like that and ask questions. And I also want us to be a church that is safe for people coming in with those questions as well. Can people come here who don't believe what you believe? who don't understand maybe what you understand, who aren't yet bought and sold on Christianity. And can they come here and can this be a safe enough place for them to process the gospel, to consider the questions that they have, to deal with the objections that they have? Or is the way in which we speak about them and about others and to them going to leave the impression that this is not a place where you are welcome to come if you don't yet believe? I want it to be a place that's, that's welcoming to those who yet don't understand or don't believe. And they can ask questions without feeling like a fool. Because, and we should be like that. And the reason why is because Jesus is like that to Thomas. Jesus is just so gentle and merciful with Thomas. He says, come to me with your doubts. You have questions? I will give you reason to believe. I'll give you an answer to those questions. I'm not going to run you off and make you feel like you're a fool because you ask these questions. They're legitimate, good questions. And Jesus is pleased to make himself known in that way, to impress himself upon people in that way. And that's why we ought to be like that, as people who are in Christ. That's another angle we could spend a whole bunch of time on. There are other things. The angel... Uh, appearing to Mary? What do we know about angels? Not very much. There's a lot we could talk about about the angels. We could talk about Jesus' post-resurrection body, how he just seems to appear in, in locked buildings without ever you know, entering through the front door like normal people do. What does that say about our post-resurrection body? What is that going to look like? 
What did that mean? The initiative he takes in making himself known. The the breathing of the Holy Spirit on the disciples. There's so much that we could explore in this passage, but I just want to zero in on the one last thing before we leave here as the thing that I think underscores all of this. Everything that we've looked at so far. I think the thing that underscores this whole passage that is the common thread here is that in all of Jesus' post-resurrection interactions with his people, He is coming to them and he is bringing them peace. Jesus brings peace to his people. That's what the resurrection tells you. If you believe in him, you're a person who has peace. You may not feel like that. And the the people before the resurrection didn't feel like that either. In in the midst of of time between Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection was a time of deep anxiety, depression, in the lives of these people. They built their whole lives upon Jesus, and now what was going to happen? They, they were forlorn. They were despondent. And then Jesus appears to them in the resurrection, and he brings them peace. I mean, Jesus brings peace to these people, there, and it overwhelms them. It becomes the, the reality of their life. You know, on my Facebook page, I'm kind of this Facebook person, and I have this photo album on there called The Southern Experience. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that album that I have on my page, but being from California, you come to the South and you kind of see things with a different set of lenses that many people here will see. And, and um, I mean, I've taken pictures of these things that you see in the South, like a, you know, a, a, an ad in the newspaper that says that if you come to the local buffet with your church bulletin after church on Sunday, you get $1 off. I mean, that would never happen anywhere outside of the South. It's just such a unique thing. It makes me laugh. But there are also a lot of things in the South. We have church signs, don't we? Especially when you go out to the rural areas. All these crazy church signs. And they've made books about them, taken pictures of them. And a lot of these signs are really cheesy. I mean, they're just frankly weird. And, And some of them are really simplistic. And some of them are just downright heretical. And I have to admit to you, I look at those signs and I'm kind of cynical. And, you know, I I. I'm probably not as charitable as I should be when I look at those signs, but that's how I am nonetheless. And I was driving up to Jackson this week, and somewhere between you know, Mize and Mendenhall, I saw this sign with Jesus on it. Big billboard, huge thing. And it said, No Jesus, K-N-O-W, Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, N-O, Jesus, no peace. And it's kind of trite. We've all heard that. There are gaps that need to be filled in. But by and large, that sign is absolutely true. It's absolutely true. The only way to really know peace is to know Jesus. And if you don't know him, you don't have that peace. He's trying to get us to see this here. That that when Jesus comes to Mary and he comes to the disciples, he brings them out of hopelessness and into peace. And and Peter and John experience this. They experience the peace of Jesus Christ. And they're able to go throughout the rest of their lives. That that peace fuels them. The peace that they know that Jesus has purchased for them fuels them to make their way throughout the rest of their lives and to preach the gospel and to endure persecution and to endure suffering to the point of being exiled or martyred for their faith. It's a beautiful thing that peace does. Everybody wants it. It's what we work for. It's the great equalizer in all of our lives. No matter who you are, I know that I'm speaking to people who want peace. No matter what your life is, even going to war is an attempt for peace. It's it's at the bottom of all of our efforts. It's at the bottom of our work. 
of our play, of our rest, of eating and drinking and being merry. It's all so that we would experience some sense of well-being. And when we feel like peace is out of our grasp, we become anxious and we become depressed. We have so many of the things. Many of us here have so many of the things that we've longed for. To, to one degree or another, we've lived the American dream. We, we, we have these things, and yet we're still discontent. And many, maybe many of you are here this morning and you feel that sense of discontentment, that sense of hopelessness, and you just want to throw your hands in the air and stop fighting for hope and joy. It just seems like something that's out of our reach. And in the midst of that, and in the midst of the disciples and Mary and all those other women experiencing that sort of seeming hopelessness, Jesus comes to them and he says, Peace be with you. It's not a wish. It's not just a hocus-pocus thing. It's a promise. It's a benediction that we talked about last week. It's a promise for his people. And yet in our lives, we, we know that we have that promise. He's declared that we have that promise, but there's that incongruity between our lives that seem to be so unpeaceful, so chaotic, so out of control, and the fact that Jesus comes and he brings us peace. There's more to say about that than we have time for, but before we leave, I just want to point out a few practical hooks that you can take with you with regard to that, with dealing with that disconnect between the peace that Jesus says that we have and that he promises to us and that we don't seem to experience in our our lives. Here's the first thing, just very quickly. Trying to find our ultimate peace in our circumstances and what's going on in our lives is always going to make us more and more insecure. It's always going to make us more anxious when we seek our contentment and our peace from our circumstances. And the reason why is because our circumstances change all the time, and the, the, the stability of this world ebbs and flows, and we were never created to find our ultimate peace in our circumstances anyway. That's not what we were created for. We were created to find our peace in God and who, he's, and who He is and what He's done for us in the gospel. Many of us know this, right? We, we have family, our marriage, our finances, our home, our health. All that can just be snatched away in the blink of an eye. And if anybody should know that, it should be us, right? We experienced that in Katrina. You could be in your house watching television on Saturday night. On Monday morning, your house could be out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. It happens that quickly. And it can happen in anything in your life. And many of you have experienced that. You know that personally, existentially. And so if you're seeking peace in your circumstances and in your stuff and what's going on in your life, you're going you're gonna to see that as, a, as being wildly failing. It's never going to meet up to your standards. If you're seeking all of your peace in your marriage, you're putting way too much pressure on your spouse to be the God that they were never designed to be to you in the first place. Our ultimate peace, my friends, can't come from our relationships and it can't come from our circumstances. And it's all easily lost in this life anyway. Another thing is this, that peace in this life, the Bible really calls it shalom, it's kind of that total sense of well-being and contentment, it's, it's only going to be experienced as we begin to internalize the perfect peace that Jesus has accomplished for us, not in this life, but in the next life. If you don't know an eternal peace, then all you have is peace in the stuff of this world and the things that vanish. But if you really know that your debt has been taken, 
if you really know that you're a forgiven person, that your sins have been paid for, and that the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been deposited into your account, and that peace has been established between you and him, then it makes you able to say in the midst of the deepest possible pain that you could be experiencing in your life that even though my flesh and my heart may fail, the Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It makes you say along with Paul who was in a life of constant chaos, constant suffering, imprisoned, eventually killed for his faith, to say that I have learned to be content in all circumstances. Not The circumstances aren't what make me happy. The circumstances are what make me depressed. But I have peace and I have contentment because I know that this world is not my home and all this stuff and all the securities of this life are not what brings me ultimate security. I have that in a resurrected Jesus Christ and that's where my hope lies and that's where my peace lies. If he can conquer death, my friends, there is nothing that he can't do. We say that, that we believe that. But do we really believe that? When are we going to start believing that? That's what Jesus wants us to see in this passage. And here's the last thing. The fact that Jesus brings us peace by virtue of the resurrection is not going to do you a hill of beans good until you actually start believing in it. It's not going to do you any good until you start believing in him. It's one thing to have money in your account... It's another thing to draw from it, isn't it? And what Jesus is saying is that he was born in a manger. He was born in this obscure, backwoods, who cares town to this who cares family. And if you don't believe that he came to be born in that manger and to live that humble life all throughout the course of his life, to atone for your sins on the cross and to rise so that you would have peace if that doesn't make any difference in your life, then all it is is just an ivory tower academic discussion. It, it doesn't have any bearing upon our lives. The purpose of this, the purpose of John's gospel, he says it here, is that so that we would believe. It's so that we would believe and that by believing we would have life in his name and when we have life in his name we have peace. He gives us that peace. When Jesus appears to his people and he gives them life, they go from lukewarmness from who cares Christianity, from it being just kind of this thing they do because it's just part of the DNA of the world in which they live. And it moves them to a powerful, white, hot desire to bank their whole lives upon who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for them in the gospel. And the reason why is because their peace is no longer in this world. Their peace is in heaven with him. That's where their joy lies. And so it, it can't stay in our head. It has to get dug down deep. The people heard Jesus' voice, they saw him raised, and they followed him. And no, we don't get to see Jesus in the flesh. He's ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he's making intercession for us, but he does still reveal himself to us. He reveals himself to us in his word and in his gospel and he speaks to us through it and he speaks to us through it that we might believe and that we might have life in his name and that we might know a peace that surpasses all understanding. Let's take that with us as we leave this morning. Let's pray. 
Father, this is a great promise that we have in this passage. We're so thankful that you have risen for us. You've risen indeed. We thank you that that's what you were born to do. Christmas tells us that you were born to live for us where we failed, to die for us what we deserve to to suffer, but also to be our hope, to be the hope of the resurrection so that we have a hope that one day we would rise again and be with you. We long for that day. We thank you that that is where our peace lies. And we pray that in this life that we would experience some measure of that as well in the subjective experience of our day-to-day lives. Would you do that in us so that you would be glorified, so that we would enjoy you, and so that others would come to know you as well. We pray it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.